0: In this episode, we speak with Professor Adam Getachew, who is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. We speak about the founding of the OAU and world making after empire. What sort of states did these anti-colonial fighters seek to create? So now we speak with Professor Adam Getachew, who is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago.
1: And just just thinking about the sheer length of time that we have for the process of decolonization to be completed. Um, You know, the struggles, especially on the African continent are protracted. They last into the eighties and nineties in Southern Africa. Um, And even uh, my, my own focus is on the early period. So in that early period of the forties, fifties and sixties, I primarily focus on the international politics of decolonization. And um, in that context, you see, a long protracted struggle to say, secure a universal right to um, self-determination, a right that had not been included in the first articulations of the UN charter or the UN UDHR, but then, you know, get incorporated and realized in the 1960s. So, just even if we take the standard story of what decolonization is, which is independence of, of national nation states in, in across the world, even that process was a highly protracted process. And, um, and I think uh, more going beyond that standard story, if we think about its kind of vision of equality uh, um, internally and domestically, uh, it, was a, it was a radical project.
0: Indeed, it was. Um, basically, it was a very... It's a time of upheaval all across the Black Atlantic. Um, <clears throat> but then, of course, it didn't happen on its own. It happened because of men and women on the ground. So can we talk a bit about the men and women you know, across both Africa and the Caribbean who, was, who were very influential for this struggle? You know, the anti-colonial intellectuals, statesmen... And many of them actually existed in the the diaspora as well, before going back to do what they felt was their life's work. Could you just talk a bit about them?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I want to first say that I think we should uh, think of nationalist movements were mass political movements. They involved many everyday people. Um, I think it's really important, for instance, to acknowledge the ways that labor strikes and labor struggles were a central space from which nationalist politics emerged. So for instance, um, in Jamaica, a series of strikes in 1938 are the context in which national parties, uh, the people's national party and Jamaica labor party emerge. Uh, So it's the same in the kind of West African context. There's a series of labor struggles, including, um n- not just in the urban sector but also uh, uh, farmers um, a, a great level of mobilization for instance by cocoa farmers around very everyday things the cost the 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 ways that their goods are being sold on the markets like the prices they got for them, et etc so these everyday struggles are really important and constitute the kind of background a backdrop for the the nationalist mobilization mm-hmm. um in my book i focus on uh, as you say more the intellectuals and the statesmen uh figures like kwame Nkrumah, eric williams uh nandia zikwe julius Nerere, um, and others one of the things that just really interests me about these figures are that they're you know um Intellectuals and statesmen simultaneously they're people who write a lot a lot about what they 're doing how they're doing it what their conception of the world is um, uh, and so that for me um, was well as a political theorist and a kind of intellectual historian that was an easy place to kind of gravitate towards to begin to think about what the politics of what, what some of the ways that these figures conceived of decolonization. Um, as you say, many of these figures are, you know, el- 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 end up becoming colonial elites. They're educated abroad um, in-, in the UK and the United States. They form lots of collaborative networks with each other um, across these spaces. Um, so that's in part one way to understand the kind of internationalism of anti-colonial nationalism is that it's an it's a project born in connection and in collaboration with uh fellow travelers um on the global stage um i think and i think this also ends up inspiring and orienting these set of figures towards a simultaneous project of national transformation and global transformation
0: Exactly. I mean, you speak about, I mean, someone like Eric Williams, for example, who wrote a very definitive text linking slavery to capitalism, which was yeah. his PhD thesis, actually, which, he, which became a book. Um, Namdi Azikiwe as well wrote a lot and edited a lot as the editor of the West African pilot. Um, pilot. He even wrote poetry, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so I guess this leads us to the next question, really, is um, many of these men, at the time of trying to create a new state, what was their vision of what kind of state they were trying to create? Because there was a global order around this time that was very um, unwelcoming to the very existence of their beliefs. Um, so what kind of state were they seeking to create?
1: Um I mean, you know, um, I think broadly, uh, if you look at early documents, um, so for instance, if we just stick with Ezekue, he has a a blueprint for Nigeria, which is 1943, uh, maybe slightly. It's been a while since I wrote the book, so I'm forgetting dates a little bit. Um, And and also uh, he's part of because he's a journalist he's part of the British West African press delegation around World War one uh, and he writes um, with others this uh, collaborative memorandum uh, on what they think the Atlantic Charter and the vision of post war reconstruction should mean for. Uh, British West Africa. So I think one of the things that's really interesting about those early documents is you see a very clear vision of uh, equality understood as equal civil and political rights, but also a vision of redistribution. Um, I believe it's the memorandum on the Atlantic Charter, for instance, says something like, you know, basically that uh, a kind of collective ownership of the of the resources of the country of the region should be given to the people etc so there's very much uh drawing on a variety of uh influences and orientations socialism um, um and and the kind of emerging welfare states of the western world um so that's so and if, it's interesting also if you look at those early documents because there is some flexibility around the institutional form by that. I mean, it's not clear that they think Nigeria and Ghana and all of them will be separate States yet. Uh, So one, there's a quite a long, they imagine even themselves a pretty long process towards achieving independence. They want to secure these initial kind of redistributive demands for first in some ways. Um, And um, then there's the, even the question about, well, what will be, will it be Nigeria or the West, West Africa, a kind of federation of West Africa? Um, and then this eventually gets to, by some, by the time we get to the fifties, um, uh, like Nkrumah and others, or Nkrumah in particular would argue for a very strong vision of the U- union of African states. And I argue that this was a kind of, um, a they had a vision of decolonization that was um uh, organized around concentric circles that there was a vision and this is because they had a vision of empire too that worked at the lo- level of the international domestic and we might say individual um so the process of decolonization similarly tried to address itself to each of these moments and spaces
0: exactly um but then, I don't know how, but I guess the question I want to ask now is a lot of these nations got their independence, you know, late 50s, early 60s. But then one nation in particular, Ghana, was so influential for everyone, really, at that time. I mean, Sudan got its independence in, in 56, but it, mm. <laughs> it wasn't as celebrated, really. I don't understand why, um, from reading my own, I guess, yeah. reading the things I've seen. But what I'm really asking here is, why was Ghana so important to everyone, really? I mean, Jamaica got its independence in 1962, Nigeria in 1960, for Ghana in 1957. Why was that? Why was the Ghanaian independence struggle such a beacon for everyone across yeah. the world?
1: That's a really, it's a great question. And actually, um, David Levering Lewis, in his biography of Du Bois, in the part two of the two volumes, he brings up this very issue, you know, I mean, it's not really, I even repeated in my book that Ghana is the first sub-Saharan African state to gain independence. Like, it's not really true because of Sudan (laughs) in 56. That's really, you know, but I think there's a lot of things about Ghana that end up becoming very significant. One, it's in some ways, I mean, um, it's a kind of model colony for the British, right? It's like uh, held up as a sort of ideal typical Gold Coast, yeah, it's a long uh, standing, they have long standing, you know, connection there. But um, I think though there are other, you know, so, so on the one hand, like the British loss of that territory signals something about where we were in the, on the horizon. Um, It's a very different kind of relationship, you know, to Sudan, the Sudan. And um, uh, so that's one, I think it's about the standing of Ghana in relation to the wider empire. I think the other reason though, that it's really important is um, because like uh, it's, it's not the same as the Indian national struggle, but like the Indian national struggle, it models this form of non-violent um, massive mass civil disobedience or uh, mass mobilization, which Nkrumah, partly riffing on Gandhi, calls positive action. This becomes really important. I mean, for so thinking about um, for wider visions of of political struggle, that this is another example of you know concerted mass action being able to produce. Uh, the transform- transformation and if you look at um say civil rights uh SNCC and other organizations in the u.s they have three international examples in mind india of course um very clearly ghana and south africa as these key spaces from which they're trying to learn about what what the possibilities and limits of mass civil disobedience are um, Third, and Nkrumah is a highly internationally connected figure at this point. That's true, actually. Yeah, he spent 10 years abroad. Uh, You know, he brought with him a whole coterie of advisors and others who are very connected transnationally. Um, George Padmore, most importantly, Arthur Lewis, the economist, um, you know, C.L.R. James. These are all figures in his orbit. As I mentioned at the beginning of my book, um you, even the audience members Coretta Scott King Martin Luther King are present at the at Ghana's when Ghana celebrates um uh, its independence so um i think that's really important as well um I mean, I would say one, you know, so there's both like these strategies that people are sharing across the world, across each of the world of the Black Atlantic world and across the decolonizing world more generally. And then I think there's another reason that Ghana has significance is that unlike Sudan, not to say this is historically correct, but there's a idea that Ghana uh is this is uh connected in a more direct way with the slave trade and slavery and so it's it has this history the true black nation yes maybe we might say that i mean i, I wouldn't want to you know yeah well there's this a sense that it is it, it, it's connected historically to this experience of the diaspora uh, directly, felt in a sense that there's a direct connection there. Um, and then, of course, Nkrumah does a lot of things to spread the revolution. I mean, he decides very early on that he wants to have two different meetings, one of, of ind- already independent African states, um, which is held in 58, and then in 59 of um, revolutionary movements, nationalist movements, who, who have yet to uh, you know, gain independence. So he also positions himself in Ghana as the space from which the anti-colonial revolution will spread to the rest of Africa.
0: Exactly. He was a true politician, really. Um, but then this leads us to the next point, which is many of these states across the continent, you know, not just within West Africa. You know, you had Bourguiba in um, Tunisia, you had Kaunda in Zambia, in the east you had Nyere, and in the west you had um and Krumah, of course, they all came together to create the OAU, you know. And this was a very revolutionary thing at the time of creating a new order on the international stage to fight for African interests. And in your view, how exactly did this um, organization come to be? What went into the formation of it? And for many people, the formation of the OAU is the death of Pan-Africanism because once it was formed, everything else kind of like just, you know, Um, yeah what do you think about this
1: yeah that's a great question um i mean i think it's right that um the oau was um a the mark of a certain kind of retreat or um the it, it came out of the collapse of a different kind of vision which was what Nkrumah had advocated for a stronger political federation and union of African states. And he made that case for a strong federal center, for a, a form of political and economic integration that could uh, generate new forms of economic interaction between African states and so forth. He, he made those set of arguments uh, on the view that, you know, these states are. Fragile enterprises, they're weak economically and so uh, politically precarious on the international stage, and that what he wanted to do was use the apparatus of federation um, to re- reorient these uh, uh, countries so that they constituted one regional unit instead of having their economic and political allegiances be oriented out to to the West, right? Um, so why that project failed. I mean, the story I tell in the book is of two kinds of reasons why it fails. One, um, you know, even for Nkrumah, he makes this, he makes this pitch at a moment where he's already committed himself to the nation state, right? He's got, Ghana has gotten independent. It's a Republic. And even while the constitution of Ghana says we will, you know, uh, delegate our sovereignty to the federation, There's it's still a moment in which, in other contexts, uh, Nkrumah's government is making arguments for strengthening state sovereignty, say, by c- kind of commitment to non-intervention. Um, then most most importantly, I think for a number of states, um, uh, Nkrumah's vision feels like creating a new hegemon on the domestic uh, on the, in the African stage, on the African, in the African context. Right. Um, and there, they are also very serious worries that Nkrumah himself is interested in, in a power grab that really that's, this is what it's, what, what's really driving him. Um, but even if we don't, if we take him to be genuinely con- committed to the project of, of Pan-Africanism, which I do, um, I think, you know, they never really resolve the question about what the relationship between constituent states and um, a a regional body ought to be. And Nkrumahs is one in which the states would be subordinated to the regional authority. Um, And what the OAU ends up doing is replicating and reproducing The model of the uh, United Nations into the African context, right? It's a mechanism not for transforming or reimagining state sovereignty, but of reinforcing state sovereignty and holding the state, you know, up. And I mean, uh, and that's what the OAU is best remembered for, is defending the sovereignty of African states, regardless of the situation. Of course, most Early on in its life, early on in its after its founding, in the context of the Nigerian Civil War and the Biafran bid for independence, it defends Nigeria against against the aspirations of Biafra. I mean, I think this is it's an organization that is also interested in the weakness of of um, African states. Right? Uh, it's not one, so it's also an organization that's trying to address itself to this question of. What it takes to be the problem of of, this, of, of fragile sovereignty, uh, but its a way of addressing that is by reinforcing the state in, the state against both internal international, but also internal um, encroachments.
0: Exactly, um, you mentioned that there were different um, points of view. So indeed, we had the Casablanca bloc, which was led by Kwame Nkrumah. And also countries like Algeria and, and Guinea who felt like there should be a federation of African states, sort of United States of Africa. And it wasn't actually far fetched because in the West Indies, there was a federation of the West Indies around this time as well. Um, and then you had the Monrovia Bloc that had countries like um, Nigeria and Tafa Baliwa leading the country around this time and Senegal who felt like there should be a gradual economic integration of all these countries. But amidst all these different points of view, one thing was upheld that they would uphold colonial boundaries. And this Mm -hmm. was something that um, Emperor Haile Selassie, for example, was very, very intent on because he himself was an empire within Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, So why do you believe that this was upheld? You know, the belief that they should uphold colonial boundaries. And you mentioned um, supporting Nigeria, also supporting Congo, when Katanga Mm -hmm. chose to secede as well. Mm -hmm. And what, what, What do you think about this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is goes really at the, to the heart of um, what this what the right to self determination was and who got it. So, in the language of the UN declarations and that I look at, um, the subject of the right to self determination is is said to be the people, but there's a you know the people aren't they're not pre-existing entities. They don't, you just don't find them in the world. So potentially anybody could come, could say, I'm a people, right? Like the question of how to adjudicate who are the people um, is, is ends up becoming a huge question. So one strategy of, is to, to, to engage in a form of delimitation to say, people have a right to self-determination, but we respect territorial integrity, Um, So, uh, so territorial integrity, i.e. maintaining existing borders became a mechanism for containing uh, the, this, um, you know, um, this question. So I think, so on the one hand, it comes again from an anxiety about the potential weakness of these states, right? And what Nkrumah and others would call the problem of Balk- Balkanization, right? If Ghana or Nigeria or any of these states are already conceived to be as from their pers- from Nkrumah's perspective, too small, you know, they already suffer from this from marginality, that if there are kind of escalating claims of self-determination within these states, that's just gonna make that problem worse, right? I think they're also the sense which these, these moments of secession illustrate that this becomes a site of, of uh, uh, violent conflict. So um, in, in which most of these, <coughs> you know, from all the way through Eritrea the, and, and South Sudan, the more recent um, additions to African states, um, have, have always become have been violent processes you know I think there is often a uh, a lot of people when writing about Africa focus on the coloniality of the boundaries uh, and the borders but they, there's and they are obviously colonial boundaries but there's no natural boundaries for states. every state has pros, boundary boundary making processes all over the world have been, Violence and have been processed, have been produced through empire and conquest. So I don't think the coloniality of Africa's borders are distinctive to Africa. I think the bigger question is, and this is the thing that Nkrumah and others tried to do but were not successful at doing, is let's accept the boundaries, but let's ensure and transform all the constituent members of that within that boundary into the citizens of of Nigeria or into the citizens of Ghana. So it's the project of, um, you know, uh, securing political and economic equality of all uh, residents of these bounded places. That's it's the failure of that. I think that is more important than the attachment to the boundaries themselves.
0: Exactly. And uh, this actually cuts, the next question cuts into um, your research quite definitively, which is world making or world formation after empire. So the whole of the African continent basically was forged in empire, like 100 years prior to the 1960s. um, All these states on the continent were not what they were as at 1960. So many of these um, thinkers and politicians that emerged on the scene At the time of decolonization, we're challenging a very international, racialized um, system. And that's one. And then also, they were seeking to create a more egalitarian world, um, picking different sorts of points of view from the communist world and other parts as well. And they were trying to create their own legal and economic definition of of themselves on the international stage. Um, In what ways did they try to do this? We talked about the OAU but then also they were entering bodies that were born out of the, the the victors of World War II. So like the United Nations and the Bretton Woods organizations, like the IMS, I mean the UN systems broadly really. Yeah. And in what ways did they try to engage and basically tilt these systems on the international stage in their favor? Yeah.
1: Um, so, you know, I think, um, I've briefly mentioned the right to self-determination, and um, as I show in the book, this was a protracted fight to get a right to self-determination incorporated into UN legal instruments. Um, I mean, I think what's important about the right to self-determination is that it's a it's a strategy of trying to legitimize the standing of post-colonial states on the international agenda. It's an attempt also to ensure that. Uh, ongoing struggles for independence have a kind of language and international language that they can hold onto and deploy strategically. Um, but it's what I, so I want to focus on what kind of place they think self-determination gives them. So self-determination, the right to self-determination has two kind of related, uh, elements, independence and equal, sovereign equality. And, um, the idea here is, is so th- so they begin to expand and transform the meaning of sovereign equality so they're like okay you first have this claim that a formal or legal equality of states regardless of standing political and economic standing and they force uh, they make ensure that you know this sovereign equality is universalized in this moment that becomes the basis for Two other claims. Uh, One is a claim of equal decision-making power. So if we are actually legally equal members of the international community, we should have equal decision-making power. So very briefly in the early 60s, there's an attempt by post-colonial states to transform the structure of the of the Security Council to uh, widen the number of states who have, who can sit on the, who have to, to, to ha- who would have veto power. When that doesn't ex- succeed, they do expand the non-permanent members of the Security okay. Council. Um, but the more important strategy was to try and locate, trying to make the case that actually the General Assembly is the decision-making Space of the UN body because that's a place where there's one one state one one vote right and this and there's no veto powers in this context so they really try to center and foreground the General Assembly as the legislative body of the international organization so this isn't a claim of uh, a more it's a you start they started with a legal claim of equality then we've now have a political a claim of political equality where it's equal decision making power. And then we have a third one, which is uh, then using that claimed legislative authority to legislate uh, processes of redist- global redistribution. And this is when we get something like the new international economic order, where sovereign equality becomes the basis and uh, from which to demand um, greater redistribution.
0: Exactly. And around this period, I mean, many countries in Africa as well as Asia were lumped together, really, in terms of what they were seeking on the world stage. Well, let's talk a bit like more specifically about the Caribbean. Um, what was going on around this time? What sort of things were they pushing for? Rudolf Ware believes that the Caribbean really is an extension of, of African of African beliefs and history, really. So in the, what, is, what was going on in the Caribbean around this period in time? What were they trying to do on the world stage? We mentioned, I mentioned briefly, the Federation of the West Indies, but then this splintered into many different countries. And um, what was going on? How were they trying to assert themselves as well?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I trace a very parallel story um, between the Caribbean and, and Africa. So just as Nkrumah is trying to articulate a um, vision of a Pan-African Federation, um, I trace how Eric Williams uh, is engaged in a similar project and process of trying to co- to constitute, a sorry, a more, um, uh, a, a pretty centralized vision of a West Indian Federation. A West Indian Federation does exist uh, between 1958 and 1962, it's a federation of anglophone West Indian states. Um, actually, that uh, that,
0: sorry, that always surprises me that the French states did not, because of how you know vocal they were with negritude, that they did not actually seek full independence.
1: Well, I, I think um, you know, I think it's a, I mean, it's a complicated process. Um, partly, the it's it's limited to the what the anglophone caribbean because the process of federal integration happens in the in the context of empire right it's they they haven't yet gotten independence they're they decide to un- integrate as a federation first and then seek independence as a federation so and the french story is a slightly different story as as you know gary wilder and fred cooper have argued there's an attempt for a, a, a much longer protracted period to secure political rights uh, and uh, economic rights within the French, within the French empire to try and make the, transform the French empire into a French federation. Um I think what's interesting about those arguments from people like Sangor and Cesare is they give the exact same reasons that Nkrumah and Williams would as well, that, you know, about anxieties, about neocolonialism, about the smallness of these societies. And they make a second, another point, an important point, which is are we as an empire, we helped to create France. So why shouldn't we benefit in some ways from The resources that we help to create. So there's also an, an imagination of redistribution within the structures of empire. I mean, I think that process, from my view, is, and this shows up a lot in the debates about representation of, of French West Africa, is uh, one that's always highly unequal. Right? Um, there's mm-hmm. never an imagination that w- there would be equal representation. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, that generates a whole set of problems. Um, but I think uh, in some ways, I think the conditions of, of um, the, pl- the places that have remained uh, overseas departments of France are not that dissimilar from the wider Caribbean world, uh, you know. i'll say one other thing about this you know uh, the federation the west indian federation of the anglophone states collapses in 62 uh and it collapses on the basis of a referendum in jamaica so there's a popular referendum we can call it jexit um uh, uh and uh after that vote, the, the federation collapses. I mean, Eric Williams into the 1970s continues to write about the region and about the possibilities for integration. Um And he imagines, in his later writings, he imagines a federation that would include francophone states and uh, and 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 his 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 hispanophone and states as well. So so he imagines one that would be multilingual. So it 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 makes me think that the limitation of the to the anglophone world was not um, something that it was imagined as permanent, but something that they thought that he at least thought you could build on. Um, but after the federation ends in '62, a very similar thing comes into b- similar to the OAU comes into being, which is Conker the Caribbean, Cuff. Ca- huh? Concacaf. Yeah, ca- the Caribbean Community. Caricum, um, sorry, <laughs> Caricom. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> The, it it starts one. first as it, it starts first as the CARIFTA, which is what I thought you were saying, which is the Caribbean Free Trade Association, and then it later becomes CARICOM or Caribbean Community. Um, in the seventies, I shift gears to look at Michael Manley's uh, government in Jamaica. Um, you know, a figure uh, whose dad Norman Manley had started the. Um, uh people's national party uh comes to power in 72 michael maloney does i see him as very much a parallel figure to julius Nyerere and to Encinia. these efforts to you know they're sort of they're younger than people like Nk- nkrumah and williams uh, so they're like a different generation they had largely gone to school after or in around the 1950s um um, 19. So, the, the primarily, their kind of political uh, emergence is really the 40s and 50s, as, as opposed to the 30s and 40s. Um, and they're also, in some ways, dealing with the failures of the first moment and trying to reckon with that, and also trying to think differently about what um, socialism or social justice will require in their respective societies and. Um, I trace their kind of commitments and orientations towards the new international economic order, so I very much see the Caribbean and the African context as um, less i mean there are obviously historical links and linkages of of dispar- diaspora and and slavery, but also as as you know the ways that these figures write and think about their connections is really through a set of political dilemmas uh, that I call the post-colonial d- predicament borrowing from Aziz Rana, which is the sense that there's a mismatch between like de facto and de jure um, independence and how to reconcile those two things.
0: Exactly. And I'm glad you brought up the 70s because, of course, it leads us to the 80s. And I guess the question really is, is like around this period, you know, the dream of what African states were meant to be was kind of like, the wool was pulled off the eyes of the people, really. Yeah. And the way you were seen as sort of like a dictator's club. Um, yeah. And many of these states, including the Caribbean as well, did not quite match up to what um, the goal was at independence. So how exactly did these states start to influence um, international relations around this period? You know, of course, they weren't just influenced themselves, they influenced the international stage. So in what ways did they, Create new norms for states' interaction during this period, the seventies and eighties.
1: Seventies and eighties. Um, yeah. I mean, I think this is a period. I sort of think that their power is, or their persuasive and bargaining power is waning. You know, um, after the height, this the new international economic order uh, is articulated in the early seventies, and it's. Um, you know, there are brief moments of engagement, especially after the OPEC oil crisis, what there's a with? sense of anxiety. And uh, and I will say that the OPEC crisis is a real model for the kinds of things um, they're trying to do. So using producers associations to negotiate and leverage, et cetera. Um, but, you know, that brief opening very quickly begins to close because actually it ends up that the greatest um, victims of the oil crisis are post-colonial states who are oil, you know, importing states. Um, So I think of the period of the seventies and eighties as a real moment of waning of uh, any uh, commitment of the power and, and kind of purchase of this vision of self-determination. And it has to do in part with what you were saying that there's, a real sense that, you know, the projected imagination or vision of what decolonization was meant to do and meant to be. And the condition in many of these states is not, does not match up in fact.
0: Exactly. Um, I guess basically, I think the, the final question really would be, you know, from what we've all we've talked about this evening, what do you think are the legacies of the above for the entire Black Atlantic region, not just Africa and the Caribbean, but the, the, looking at it as a whole, what do you think is the legacy for all these states that exist today on the world stage?
1: That's a good one. I mean, I think I, I'm off two minds about this. You know, I think on the one hand, we are, we are witnessing some of the most important, um, you know, popular mobilizations we have in a in a long time across society obviously the u.s based black lives matter movement but also i mean what's going on in nigeria as we speak right now with the oh, and sars campaigns and i think um it's a it, it seems to me that it's a wider moment of reckoning with the limits of decolonization with the limits of decolonization or the mid uh, the mid 20th century revolutions, whether that's civil rights in the U S or decolonization around the world. And this is a reckoning with those limits that's trying to call attention to the deep forms of contradiction uh, that continue to structure many of these societies. So if we go back to the example of, of Nigeria, you know, the story of African politics is one in which, since the 1990s that dictators club has been transformed in meaningful ways there has been opening up to electoral democracy and uh some forms of democratization but um it illustrates the ways in which uh forms of you know uh I don't know what we would call them, f- forms of state despotism or an arbitrary power, un- unaccountable forms of state power continue to be exercised, um, you know. Uh, and, and, so, and another example, it would be from the South African context, where so much of the debate of the last few years has been about the deep disjuncture between political democracy and economic inequality as a legacy of the, you know, of apartheid that has yet to be reckoned with. And obviously similar things could be said about the U S so, you know, I think, um, so on the one hand, I think uh, it feels to me like there's another moment on the horizon about how, uh, about, you know, new new modes of politics and politicization. And I think the question, it's not clear how these movements will sustain themselves, how they will be able to translate from like streets, from the streets and from uh, p- t- protests to shaping uh, you know, s- political institutions and transforming political institutions. Um, so I think that's something to um, keep I know that's where my sort of interest and kind of eyes are focused is to see what will come out of these spaces. Um, I think I would say, you know, my book really focuses on the international dimensions of decolonization. And I think for me, the lesson there is about how a set of thinkers um, thought very ambitiously about what could be accomplished within international institutions and through internationalism and uh, e- even even if they remained um, committed to very standard institutions like the UN. And I do think we need to have that scale of political imagination in a moment where we're faced with so many um, uh, globe-spanning crises, COVID being one of them. But, you know, mo- and the existential climate change is not far off from that, too.
0: So now we listen to a recording from BBC Witness History on the formation of the OAU. It's May
2: 1963. A first wave of decolonization has swept through Africa and in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa, the continent's leaders gather in one place for the first time. They're meeting to decide if their nations should now become united. If we fit, and let this grand and historic opportunity slip by.
3: The people, the masses of the people of Africa will never forgive us. There was a passion for African liberation and African unity because we felt that unless Africa confronted the world with a united voice, the exploitation uh, would continue, the division would continue. So that that was the the, starting point. Habte Selassie
2: was Ethiopia's rather young Attorney General. A supporter of Pan-Africanism since the 1950s, he worked on the draft charter for the summit. Among those arriving to attend were leaders synonymous with the struggle against colonialism. The likes of the Ghanaian President Kwame Nkrumah, the first black African leader to win independence. Sekutore from Guinea, Julius Nerere from Tanganyika, Ben Bella, fresh from Algeria's war of independence against France.
3: It's difficult to describe the excitement of people. They have never seen anything like it before, you know. These African leaders, Nkrumah and Nirere were wearing a sort of collarless shirt. It became known as the Nirere shirt. Apparently, Nkrumah was advised to put on a bulletproof plate because i could see stiffness in the way he uh, moved it's obvious that he, there had been some attempt on at his life but uh, the, the the most dramatic scene of it all was actually when nasa emerged from the airplane a very charismatic tall handsome man smiling the entire airport exploded I, I could feel the ground shaking underneath my feet you know and they shouted nasa 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 apparently country folks had come from jimma from Harar, from Arusi, from everywhere because he was a hero but when it came down to business
2: the leaders were split getting them all together had been an achievement in itself
3: There were uh, divides. There was the French-Francophone-Anglophone divide, uh, the Francophone-Africans under uh, the influence of French policies. Then, of course, there was the ideological divide. Africa was uh, divided into two groups. The Monrovia group, which was the majority, uh, which Ethiopia and Nigeria were the most important, and Liberia. And then the smaller but more dynamic group called the Casablanca group, Nkrumah, Secuture, Bembella, and Nasser of Egypt, left-leaning socialistic. So Africa had actually become an ideological battleground between the East and the West. This was at the height of the Cold War. But everyone felt the urgency of Africans talking to themselves and facing the world united in some form or another. It was going to be
2: a tough job to work out a final charter which every African state could accept. The main difference of opinion was whether there should be a gradual approach
3: to African unity or whether there should be full political unity straight away. What kind of unity is going to be, as Nkrumah had demanded, a United States of Africa, a la American, or a watered-down version of that?
2: And so inside the newly built Africa Hall in Addis Ababa, Kwame Nkrumah, Ghana's president, Passionately tried to convince the others of his dream of immediate African union. We all want a united Africa. United not only in our concept of what unity connotes, but united in our common desire to move forward together in dealing with all the problems that can best be solved only on a continental basis. We must therefore not leave this place until we have set up an effective machinery for achieving african unity but julius nereri was another giant of the struggle against colonialism and he became the voice of a more pragmatic gradual
0: approach there is not going to be a god who will bring about african unity by merely willing unity and saying let there be unity and none of us is prepared in the name of unity to invite a napoleon to come and bring
2: about unity by conquest and that was taken as a gentle warning to Nkrumah with his dream fast slipping away Nkrumah threatened
3: to walk out his workout would have been disastrous, so Emperor Selassie exercised one of those fine moments of diplomacy. He called Secretary, whom he knew to be a very uh, good friend of Nkrumah, and uh, asked him, my son, mon fils, mon fils je vous prie, I, I implore you, go and bring your brother. And you know what Secretary's reply was? Oui, mon père. Yes, father. And as Akutai rushed out and persuaded Nkrumah, he brought back Nkrumah to a great cheer of the participants and the audience in the gallery. He came back and he said he would continue for the sake of Africa. And you yourself, how did you feel? At that time, all of us, myself personally included, were passionately interested and hopeful that Nkrumah's plea would be uh, accepted. But we knew in our hearts of hearts, uh, finally we realized that it was the narrative way that was going to prevail.
2: But away from the serious debate, Addis Ababa was in party mood, entertaining the hundreds of diplomats and journalists who'd arrived for the event.
3: People uh, were entertained in the evenings, dinners and cocktails.
2: Did people mix or was it quite cliquey, the different nations?
3: some people actually invited people into their homes
2: and the hospitality did not stop there the women of Addis Ababa's red light district were mobilized too people had
3: enjoyed hospitality of the fair ladies in Addis Ababa it is rumored that professional ladies the very uh, respected kind of madams, were called to the palace and uh, thanked by the emperor for helping the king and country (laughs) the leader of the youngest nation in Uganda, Milton Abote, was asked to give a vote of thanks to Ethiopia to the host country. He said, we thank the Ethiopian government and people for taking care of us day and night, <laughs> which of course created a roar of laughter. And I remember the president of Tunisia, Habib Bourguiba, who had been slumbering, dozing off, was awakened by the laughter And he nudged his uh, foreign minister, Slim. When his foreign minister whispered something to him, he started laughing himself. So that also raised another laughter.
2: (laughs) On the 25th of May, the meeting came to an end with the creation of the Organization of African Unity.